Welcome to Systematic Episode 8 on the 5x5 Network. Bandwidth for September is sponsored by Igloo. Igloo is your digital workplace. That means you can give updates, have discussions, and share files with your team all in one place. Sign up and get started at igloosoftware.com. This is Brett Terpstra, and I'm joined this week by Brett Kelly. Hey, Brett. Hey, Brett. How's it going? Great. I've had so many mics on the show, I figured I should have another Brett. (laughs) Sounds good, dude. Um, uh, You are known, uh, I guess, first and foremost, uh, blogging at Bridging the Nerd Gap. That's right. uh, Nerdgap.com. And you are the author of a book called Evernote Essentials, which is a big seller. Yes. Yes. And formerly, and this is actually where I met you, uh, a blogger on Tua. Yeah, However, for about 90 minutes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it was brief, but that's uh, that's how I first came in contact with you. And also, Inked Man, which is InkedMN on Twitter and app.net. And you get around. Yeah, here and there. I hear you on podcasts now and then. Yeah, people, there's clerical errors that happen, so I get invited to things. <laughs> I believe uh, you're going to be on the inaugural Tua podcast coming up, right? That is what I'm told. I'm super stoked about that. You are a guest for a former... What are they, is that an employer? I guess it would be a, a contract employer or something. But yeah, yeah. they paid yeah. me at one point, again, briefly. <laughs> cool. Well, given that you are uh, primarily known for organization tools... That's kind of your your mainstay, I would say. Um, I wanted to talk to you about organization. I would love that. Um, so my basic theory of organization is kind of I throw everything into one place via a variety, an array of tools. Um, and I depend on search to find what I need. What's your basic philosophy behind organization? Well... If, it, if it's about stuff, it, well, there's the, the stuff I do and then there's stuff I want to keep or stuff I have. I think that's the pretty, that's my how my brain separates the two. Tasks are an omnifocus thing, which we can talk about. Uh, stuff I want to keep, I primarily, I do, I kind of walk the line between the whole filing versus piling argument. Um, the throw everything in one place and search for it or organize everything, you know, very specifically. Uh, there's a few things that I organize, like most most of my stuff lives in Evernote unsurprisingly and i keep a lot of separate notebooks for separate things um i think i have about just at a glance i think i have like 85 notebooks or so um but most of those have between like 10 and 20 notes tops and but there are others two notebooks called inbox which i should be going through and you know filing things out of which has about uh almost 3,000 notes and one called archive which has almost 4,000 notes so (laughs) yeah it's pretty (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a really good teacher, but I'm a really sort of awful practitioner of this stuff. But I, whenever I throw something into Evernote, by default, it goes into the inbox folder or sorry, notebook. And again, ostensibly I will go back at some point and put it where it should go, tag it, fix the title, all that stuff. Uh, and after that, if there's not a good reason for it to go in one of my other notebooks, um, it goes into the archive and I do rely primarily i would say well the vast the majority of the time maybe it's a 51 percent thing but i use search to find stuff in evernote more than i do um selecting notebooks and browsing them so is it is keeping all those separate notebooks with 10 some items in them is that is that just for your own peace of mind if you're depending on search anyway um i think a lot of it is 
I <laughs> we're gonna, we're going to spend this, the next ten minutes just describing how bad I am at this stuff. Um, I have, a lot of these notebooks are temporary insofar as they're for like a project or something that I'm working on that will eventually ship or be done. And there's many of these notebooks are for projects that I've already shipped or have already finished, <laughs> and I just haven't gone through and like melded them back into the larger archive yet. Um, but I the, I have a few that are like that, but I have several that are things like that I really want to just be able to click once and look at. And I don't want to have to go through a bunch of organizational organizational dancing at first just to be able to go find them. So I have uh, I have a, a notebook called Memories-Brett. I have another one for my wife. And so when my kids like draw me pictures, I scan them in my little scan snap thing, throw them into that notebook, and I tag them, or I don't. But, but I, 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 with one click, I can look at all of the stuff that I wanted to remember that relates either to my kids or like my... I, I, Looking at it right now, uh, my, I've got a picture of my son holding the, the, the second tooth he lost, you know, or things like that. So I want to be able to just quickly jump to those things and look at the cool stuff my kids have made or done or whatever. But I, I don't know. I, I think that I'm, I'm not sold on one, either one way or the other being the right way. So as far as the notebooks being for my peace of mind, I think, yeah, because if, because of how many notes I have in my account, which is absurdly large, searching for something can take a little while unless I know exactly what I'm looking for or exactly what words I can use to find it. So a lot of my searches result in like 500 notes. So sometimes I'll just drag those out into a notebook just so I can find them again more easily. But Okay. So Evernote search excels at using tags. Where do tags fit into that scheme? Tags, I... I did what a lot of people do, I think, when they start using Evernote. Well, maybe some, not a lot. Uh, I just tagged the living hell out of everything. Like, so, like I was applying 10 tags to each note. And so yeah. I now have a list of, I think it's it's got to be close to 1,000 tags. And it's just unmanageable. And I really look at it. But I do... The, okay, the, the, the handful of tags that I do make pretty heavy use of... Um, for because I, I sell the the ebook like you mentioned, and that's like a separate business from my work, my day job. So I have to do a whole separate tax thing for that. So whenever I want to, like, if I'm out to dinner and I want to, you know, deduct the meal that I had, let's assume it was with my accountant or something, like I just snap a photo of the receipt and Evernote and tag it with 2012 tax deductible receipts. Like those are three separate tags, and those tags I have a safe search where I can look up all the expenses for the current year and then easily shove those into another notebook. I think that's the cool part about having if you tag more liberally than you file within notebooks, you can easily like batch move stuff. So if you have, I just, I remember tagging this thing with my son's name a year ago. I can just go, okay, well I'm going to tag Look at everything that's tagged with Holden's name and drag it into the Holden temp <laughs> notebook. So then now I can just sort of every week dump everything into the Holden or maybe the Holden permanent notebook. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's definitely not something that I, I mean, I'm, I'm more pro than several people, I guess, but I've yet to find a nice balance between over tagging and under tagging. I do tag a lot, but I wouldn't say I tag most of my notes. I, you, you, you mentioned in there something that I subscribe to as a tagging philosophy. And that is if I'll remember it a year later. And when I go to add tags to anything in Evernote or open meta tags, or even in note taking applications, um, I always stop and I think, if I want to find this note a year later and I've forgotten the title of it, I've forgotten most of the contents of it, and I just remember that there is a note regarding a topic, what am I going to search for? And that's the tag I put on it. And 
I make sure to reuse tags as much as possible because I too, when I first started tagging, it was, my, I had a tag cloud, I think within the first month that was already unmanageable in Evernote. Yeah. You know, they had the tag sidebar probably still do, but I've hidden mine because it did get unmanageable. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I did the same thing where I started using a more uh, a more sane number of tags, and uh, and I I think it creates I I use separate notebooks for major divisions, uh, work, play, travel, etc. And then I use tagging to sp- split up trips, for example, within the travel notebook. Mm-hmm. It seems to work all right, but I don't think there's a I don't think there's a perfect system that you could put in a book and say, this is how to organize. Well, I, I have ways that I recommend when people ask me, because I, I get asked that quite a bit. Like, what's the right, you know, tags versus notebooks? How do I tag that kind of thing? And I have a, a pretty serviceable general purpose answer, I think. But for myself, like I, I'm a much more involved user than most people. So I kind of run up against the limits of my own goofy system that I've made up. But I want to talk about something you mentioned a second ago, which I thought was um, interesting. And I, I talked about this earlier or not earlier today, but like a year ago, um, the idea of when you're saving information, either whether it's an Evernote, this was, it was in an Evernote context that I said this, but like planning for the dumber you or the less informed you some period of time from now. So the example I gave was we have one of those universal TV remotes that you can buy at Ralph's for like 10 bucks. Mm -hmm. Cause you lose your regular remotes, but you have to like, and they they can work with like any TV on the planet, but you got to like code, you know, key in the little numeric identifying code so it knows what tv it's talking to and i was always losing those and i like it would come with the the big thick book of codes that i would lose within an hour and after a while i figured okay i'm just going to put these in evernote because you know i need them every like four months just long enough so i can forget them and i thought okay well when i go to look in evernote for this what am i going to type in the search like i'm going to type the word universal and the word remote probably and so I made sure to include, even though that like weren't even in the title of the note or if point is, if you find, if you think that you're going to be searching for, I just need to know like my son's pant size. If I take a hold of a picture of like a Levi's receipt or something and take a picture of that, like I need to make sure and include the words pant size somewhere in the note, like even the title or even in the body, just at the bottom. So I know that when I search for that later, I'll have a better chance of finding it. And it could be a little more elegant with tags. I agree, but yeah, but that's exactly what I'm talking about. That whole because you know once you've been doing this for a while, you get to that point where you are dumber. You 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 don't have any context anymore for for uh, for any other way to find that note other than basic keywords. And if you didn't put those in to start with, you're never going to get there. Yeah, totally. Um, I uh, I tried an interesting experiment for a while with Evernote where I I have uh, junk drawers. Mm-hmm filled with toys and miscellaneous objects and the ones that I kept misplacing, I would take photographs of and I had a tagging system based on cabinets and drawers. And I would take a picture of say a pair of earbuds and I would say they're in the Oak Ikea cabinet second drawer and I would tag them as such. And then I could quickly say, you know, earbuds, and it would show me exactly where they were. Or I could click the tag for the second drawer of the Ogaikia cabinet and see everything that was in it. It gets unmaintainable after a while, but with with an iPhone, when you can just snap the picture and add it to Evernote as you go, it, it kind of worked. I think it was something worth exploring further, but I tried to talk Phil at Evernote into letting me write it up for them, but then I lost interest in it before I 
convinced him. I actually do something not not entirely dissimilar from that. Like I have I have several boxes full of like paper and like, miscellaneous tech crap, and but I have one box called like miscellaneous, which is just all kinds of odds and ends, not even necessarily just tech, but stuff from around the house. And we bought a um, we bought a chest freezer, those you know the big ones you put in your garage. We bought one of those like four months ago, and it came with all these extra pieces. And they were like, there's like a little drain valve, which you need only if you want to drain the thing. And, you know, a couple of little add-ons that we didn't need when we first installed it. And I thought, okay, well, I don't want to lose these, obviously. So in in the process of, you know, going through and adding all of the stuff related to this appliance to Evernote, uh, I took a picture of the bag of stuff. And I've in, in Evernote, I put, here's the photo of the thing, what it looks like. And below it, I wrote, this is the bag that contains X, Y, and Z. It's in the miscellaneous crap box in the office. And it's tagged with, you know, freezer. So whenever I look at all the stuff about the freezer, I'll see, ah, there's that little thing. And hopefully unless, you know, I or somebody in my house moves it, like it'll be where I hoped, where I, where I said it was last time. So I, uh, we have an eerie, like sameness to the way we do things. Yeah. Well, you know, great minds. That's right. <laughs> um, we're, uh, it's, it's, it's obvious that you use Evernote for uh, the vast majority of the information in your life. Um, is there anything that doesn't go into Evernote for you? Um, tasks <laughs> well that leads nicely into my next question yeah. do you use Evernote for task management so why don't we combine those two questions and tell me what you do for task management okay um, I use OmniFocus for tasks um, well for most of my almost almost all of my tasks are live in OmniFocus and we could talk for three hours about how that works because that's like one of my favorite apps in the whole world but um, I think you you were talking about somebody about using OmniFocus and then also using Task Paper. Is that right? Yeah, I was I was talking to Merlin that's about right. that. That's I don't right. know if he approved, but that's what we were talking about. Okay, so just having the like the big, you know, sort of mothership where all the tasks live, and then also having the scratch pad, the really quick. I just need to make a list of stuff to do in the next two hours or the next day, or to, to finish this project before I, I get it out the door this afternoon. Like for that stuff, I I definitely use Evernote because I can. Getting stuff into OmniFocus is easy with the little HUD thing that you can do, the uh, quick entry HUD. Mm-hmm. But like I've used the uh, Command Control N key shortcut on Mac to open a new Evernote note from anywhere. I use that all the time. So if I need to just start typing something, no matter what it is, usually if it's a list or just a, something I don't want to, I mean, I want to get it out of my head and it's not a task, it's just a thing I want to remember, I could just fire that keyboard shortcut and start typing. But so that's that's enough in my brain to where it's like okay we got to make a list boom I'm you know hit that and I'm typing and the list is getting made and like I said ordinarily that's just for make sure you fix this typo on this page or make sure you don't forget to, to call this lady when you're done or whatever like real just tactical stuff um, and beyond that everything lives in OmniFocus. Well, that's that's cool. I use uh, I use Task Paper I guess the way that you use Evernote for for one off lists and then. I keep all my coding projects separately, as I was talking about with Merlin. Um, I keep basically all of my feature plans and bug reports and everything just get too overwhelming for me in OmniFocus. Mm-hmm. And they're not generally things that I have to do today or right now. And they rarely have due dates. And they're just, they're kind of someday maybe things that to me work better in project specific files that I can sync to other machines and. I don't know. I could find ways to do it with OmniFocus, but 
it just it's it's clutter to me. Well, you said you use did you you might have just said this, but you use task paper like within projects. Yeah, I create a task paper document inside of the Git repository for every project. Nice. That that seems totally serviceable to me. <laughs> and I have command line tools like I can type na and then just type whatever idea I just had for that project and it'll go into the inbox section of that task paper file from the command line. <laughs> nice. Oh, you're, you're, you're a badass. I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> um, so what other apps uh, besides Evernote and OmniFocus, are there any other apps that you use that kind of fit this organizational style that you have? Hmm. Um, I think for... We can touch on this briefly. I'm not sure if this is a thing or not, but uh, like writing stuff, I don't generally keep in either of those apps. It Well, not always, sometimes, but for for like blog writing and ebook related stuff like ebook, like, well, okay. When I want to make a list of stuff I got to do to fix, to update the ebook, which I'm currently in the middle of doing like that will generally go in Evernote. Cause it's just like a running tick list of stuff I got to get done. Um, as far as like blog posts, those generally start their life in Byword because I use it on my Mac and on my iPad and iPhone and all that. So I just, you know, create it. And they're all the uh, iCloud, iCloud sunk as it were. And so I just prefix all those with NG for their gap. And then dash and then like a you know a slug a title and then i just start typing and they're either like you know they could be a sentence they could be a thousand words or where anywhere in between but the writing yeah. workflow generally starts there until it's done then i move it into um mars edit and then i publish it but and you publish to wordpress right that's right uh well i have an, i have my own personal brettkelly.org site that nobody reads which is sort of dumb i mean the site's nice but there's nothing really there and that runs on squarespace okay okay and then NerdGap runs on WordPress. So do you, this is a little bit off topic, but I was playing the other day with Jekyll as I have been for a year now. Mm -hmm. And I found a way uh, via Daniel Jalcut to blog to Jekyll using Mars edit. And that's got me all excited about the whole process again. Huh. Don't really know why, but the idea of integrating Mars edit with, with Octopress or Jekyll is it's kind of very intriguing to me. Have you, do you, you, have you seen Jekyll at all? Yeah. Yeah. It's well, it's the static file or static site generator that runs its R Ruby thing, I think. Yeah. And you just, you, you type markdown files and it spits out your site whenever you update or it spits out the, like a, a Delta between the change site and the current site. Yes. And, and it, uh, it can build your tag pages and categories and everything and generate them in a static form every time you, deploy your site which is um if you if you've ever gotten large amounts of traffic you know that wordpress can improperly configured not deal well with that and a static site has a lot of appeal to me yeah i've thought about that but i think i'm in something of a weird position because i don't just use because wordpress is also like my ebook store it's not just like my blog sure so i have a lot of well, a lot but i have a, a handful of small plugins that I use that help me do the selling of the thing stuff. Um, I use a, a one called premise. Uh, it's made by uh, copy blogger media. Uh, it's like a landing page. So if, if you go to my site and you click the big book logo, you'll get taken to this specially designed page that just has like stuff about the book. Like the, the header's gone, the nav's gone. It's just one page. It just so you can walk through and click the buy button if you want to buy it. And like there are ways of doing that and using just vanilla WordPress, 
but this was something that I was like, okay, I'm willing to spend a few bucks to be able to just spit one of these pages out without having to go in and, and like either manually hack CSS, et cetera. And so that if I did move to something like Octopress or uh, Jekyll or any other static site, it would be hard to reproduce that functionality. And right now, like I, my blog is by no means popular. <laughs> I get, you know, a few hundred visitors a day and it's nice, but nothing that would cause WordPress to strain. And even when things do, when I do get a, a big link from somebody and I get a few thousand visitors, it's like I've got the caching pretty well dialed in. So it doesn't ever cause too much of a problem. But I definitely sure. see the appeal of the static site thing. Yeah, I think part of it's just the nerd factor for me. But it, it goes back to what we were actually talking about um, with uh, blog posts starting not in OmniFocus, but in, you know, markdown files, uh, mine start in NVALT. I have a, a task paper file that shows up in NVALT and I punch in my ideas there. And then I use the command shift L to create a link to a new note from the title of the, the item in the list. And then I elaborate on it there. And if necessary, outline it in a multi markdown composer or in. Uh, a mind mapping application output to OPML and then start writing from that. Um, it's a rather convoluted process and it depends entirely on the type of article, but it all comes back to kind of markdown files that I store in NVLT more than anywhere. Hmm. But um, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's not a workflow I could easily describe. Um, in a voice format. So I'll, I'll avoid that. <laughs> and I'm going to go ahead and take a break for our first sponsor, which is SourceBits. SourceBits is a mobile app development house that lets you develop and design your next application or game. It instantly puts over 300 dedicated programmers and interface designers behind your project full time. They stand behind the idea that when you focus on brilliant design, your product becomes your marketing and your customers become your advertising iPhone, iPad, Android, BlackBerry, Facebook, and the web are just a few of the platforms that their engineers will work with you on to create a feature-rich, rock-solid application that generates incredible user loyalty. SourceBits has developed more than 500 applications for multiple mobile, web, and desktop platforms, with 20 reaching the top 10 in global application marketplaces. They understand how to apply brilliant design, turning your idea into a successful app in today's market. SourceBits helps build your application by starting with an end-to-end -end product strategy. Their engineers and designers can take your app from a sketch on a napkin to a fully deployed, functioning, and successful live product. SourceBits reduces your costs and gets your product to market more quickly with a highly efficient, agile product development process, which they've fine-tuned over years of interaction with clients. Your project will be managed every step of the way by a dedicated project partner who can tap multiple design and development centers all over the world. Join, force, join forces with SourceBits and make your consumer app vision a reality today by visiting sourcebits.com. And now we're back to Systematic. And I have been getting, um, we'll call it viewer mail, uh, which is not the right term, uh, listener, listener emails. Is that right? Feedback, um, yeah. <laughs> And uh, with questions and ideas for show topics, and there are certain questions that come up repeatedly, and I received one uh, very compelling letter from a cab driver in London named Greg Spence, who was asking on behalf of his son Oliver 
how uh, how a, a young kid could get started with programming. And I'm not the best person to ask this of because I I learn in a way that's not typical. Uh, but I figured I could share at least my path, and I and I know that Brett, you uh, you you work in in coding to some extent. You're you're a PHP developer, aren't you? Uh, I would say, in terms of knowledge of languages, I would Python is the one I know best. Oh, really? Then PHP, and C sharp, and some ActionScript, and some other things. But yeah, okay. Python so, is where I cut my teeth like eleven years ago. Yeah, um, I'm gonna. I'll outline my idea, and I already know from talking with you before the show that we don't necessarily see eye to eye on my suggestions, which is great, because I think we'll get a better answer out of this if we disagree and debate it a little bit. So, my basic approach, if I were looking at this from the standpoint of a young child, and I did, I started started with BASIC on a PC when I was six. And the first thing I learned was algorithms, your basic logic, your if-then and else statements, loops such as for and while, and then recursion, and learned one language at a time to apply those to get done what I wanted to do. From there, I I went through a litany of, of languages that I no longer use, and the only thing that ever stayed the same was algorithms. And... um to get those into the language that I want to use, I always, I reverse engineer. I don't do well with reading books. I highly recommend all the O'Reilly books, but I can't read them cover to cover. I have some kind of brain block when I sit down with a, a book like that. I can, I can use an index. I can find what I need to do. Uh, can't, can't go through tutorials. So what I do is I go to GitHub Uh, These days, anyways, I go to GitHub and I find a program that I understand what it does and and it gets the result similar to what I want. And then I work backwards to figure out how the language that it's in works and what what, uh, syntax causes what results. And, And that's how all the Python I know right now, which I just started learning about a month or two ago, um, that's how I've done it. It's just studying Python code and breaking it repeatedly until I figured out indentation that that threw me at first. But, um, but I mean, that's my basic approach and, and I'll get into more detail about what languages I would recommend in a second, but where does your approach fall and how does it differ? I would say I am a big proponent of the tutorial. (laughs) It, well, it, it depends. I think if you, if you've never written a line of code in your life, and you really have like literally no idea where to start, then I think the idea of going to like, you know, the books help with things like installing the runtime and maybe suggest some suggestions for like a text editor. And just so that the basic building blocks of getting into actually writing code. Um, And I don't know if you could quite accomplish that quite as easily by going to, you know, a GitHub project and looking at the code and going, okay, well, all of this is utterly foreign. I mean, you could, you could figure out like the basic, you could probably over time make sense of things like a for loop after you saw it written, if, assuming the code was written clearly. Okay, well, I, I understand that this is doing this one thing to all these other things. Or like if and then, those are pretty clear-ish. You're totally right, though. Building blocks. You need the building blocks, and that's something I always gloss over. Do you have any recommendations as far as 
books or sites that would be ideal for that kind of thing? Well, when I was learning Python, I bought a book that I lent to somebody years ago that I never got back, but it was uh, the Learning Python by O'Reilly. It had a big rat in the front of it or something, some big mouse. And I do not know if that's still the best way to start. If you don't want it to wasn't spend a money, snake. No, oh, was it? Am I going to be? I can't type my keyboard super loud. Um, either, well, there was programming Python, which was the big, like it was the same size as like the, the camel book for Perl, the huge one. And the, but there was learning Python, which was the shorter, less, uh, you know, it, it assumed almost no knowledge of programming. It just sort of gently walked you into the, you know, the very, very basic stuff. Um, if it makes you feel better, learning Python is a large rat. Okay, good. And programming Python is the snake. All right. So. See, there you go. <laughs> but I back you up. The the O'Reilly books are definitely, if nothing else, you you, you pick a language, um, and and get an O'Reilly book, and it'll get you started. It, it they do a great job. Um, picking a language, there there's a site. And I'm trying to remember it. I'll put it in the show notes. But it it basically does Hello World in every possible language. I remember that site, and it's a great way to kind of take a a a look through and see what appeals to you as far as syntax and structure. It's, I mean, a hello world isn't going to tell you a lot, but you can, you can see easily what's going to, what's going, what you're going to be able to grasp quickly. Mm -hmm. And you can always learn more languages after you pick your first one. Yeah. I would say, what's the boy's name? Oliver. Are we talking to Oliver? Let's just talk to Oliver. Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, a lot of people, a lot of purists or computer science -y people that are not me would probably recommend going with something like C or C++. Uh, I would say don't do that because it, you're going to get wrapped up in a lot of technical detail that you don't need to know about yet. Um, picking something like Ruby or Python or PHP or Perl, you know, one of the, the big four quote-unquote scripting languages, you're going to get to what I, I recall reading. I don't know who, who coined this term, but you get to the wow faster. So the hello world example that Brett just mentioned was like, okay, well, it's I'm really talking to Oliver right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if if in, in Python, hello world is print space, open double quote, hello world, close double quote. And that's the whole program. And in like C or C++, that's multiple lines of blah, and it's a lot more complicated. And you could do a lot of really cool stuff with all these languages. And if you've never programmed anything, you're not going to go out and build, you know, some awesome game like your first day. You're going to learn how to like make a program that counts to 10 and adds up a single column of figures or whatever. And when you can get the, use a simple language to figure out the, the basic algorithms or the basic structure of a computer program that without having to deal with a bunch of like public static void main, you know, Java business, stuff like that. It's, you'll find it a lot more, a lot easier to understand. And when you have to, when you find that the language you're using doesn't, isn't suited for a task you want to do, then you, you'll have a lot less trouble moving to a more complicated quote unquote language like Java or C or C because you'll, you'll have a, you'll all at that point, I'll just be learning the syntax instead of learning the concepts. That's, yeah, my, my thoughts exactly. Um, what I would recommend Ruby and Python as starter languages, both of which have compilers and interpreters built, I should say just interpreters built into OS 10. Uh, they're great learning points. If you have a Mac, uh, it's a great jumping off point to just start playing around with Ruby. You have the, the interactive Ruby shell IRB and with Python, you can just type Python and get into an interpreter. Um, Apple script is commonly recommended as a starting place, 
but it's so utterly frustrating when when you if you've written a hundred Apple scripts and you've dealt with a hundred different apps, Apple scripts powerful and a lot of fun, but still it's a lot of hair pulling. Mm-hmm. So, like you talk about the wow thing, if you want to make Mac applications do cool stuff, you know, like your like OmniFocus for example, if you want to quickly sort tasks and and view all the tasks from a certain inbox from another program. It's Apple script is the way to go, but getting there is, I don't know. It's really hard for me to recommend jumping into Apple script, but with enough sample code, it is the wow factor is pretty great with just a few lines of code. Yes, I agree. And and you can, I think that's the, uh, I'm going to try really hard to make this succinct and it won't work, but like you can, sometimes when like the moon is just right, like you can write a really cool, like 10 line Apple script that you would spend a long, long time building in anything else that does exactly what you want. But it has to be like just such a task that is perfectly suited for Apple script. And there aren't, I don't think a ton of those. Does that make sense? Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. Um, Scripting apps on the Mac, Apple script is definitely what you want most of the time. But if you're talking about manipulating text or doing something that's not really specific to one, any one app, like I think you're better suited looking at, especially because Python and Ruby both offer uh, Apple script bridges. I, uh, was that right? They do. Ru- Ruby's is, I think they're both uh, being discontinued. Like the app script bridge is not currently being maintained. I can't remember where that's at. I'll have to ask Dr. Drang. He was following that. But, um, but Oliver, if you want to play with Apple script, uh, just all you have to do is open up the Apple script editor on a Mac and hit command shift O, and that'll give you a list of all the Apple scriptable applications on your Mac right then. And then you can just pick one and you can read the dictionary to start getting an idea of what it does. But once you find it, you're going to want to go out on the web and search Google or DuckDuckGo for sample code that you can start modifying and and once you see what it does then you can start making it do other things but to try to write an apple script from an apple script dictionary with no prior knowledge of that particular application's apple script you'll just end up pulling your hair out but it's it's worthwhile to look into and it's worthwhile to find the sample code for i would say the only caveat i would add to that would be that learning trying to take take away whatever knowledge you pick up learning Apple script and take it to something like Python or Ruby or whatever, any other language, like there's going to be a lot more, the transition will be rougher in trying to apply the logic you learned in Apple script to any other language because it's so dissimilar from the rest and like syntax, obviously, but like the way it does even simple stuff like looping is a little bit weird. And I don't know, like there's no, there's no classes in Apple script rather. Not, uh, not by default. You can kind of fake a pattern, but, but okay. no. Yeah. So don't start with Apple script <laughs> unless you want that to be the whole of your programming thing that you do. I would not start there. I would start with something a little more general purpose. So, so to sum up, start by learning algorithms, get a good book that teaches you the basics and, uh, and pick a, pick a language like Ruby or Python and, and get good at that. And then if you, uh, if you're ready to try Apple script after that, you can apply the basics that you learned in a more structured environment like Ruby or Python to Apple script. But if you try to do that in reverse, you're probably asking for trouble. 
and always, always, always Google for the thing you're trying to Apple script because there's always like 50 ways to do it. And chances are someone's already done it before, unless it's really esoteric. But yeah, like look around and try to find sample Apple script code to at least get you started. And that's true of any language, though. Like someone before you has probably accomplished something very close to what you're trying to do. And if nothing else, it's always worth it to look at someone else's code and see how they did it. Indeed. You can learn a lot of new tricks that way. So that concludes the listener mail portion of our segment. Um, no listener mail segment of our show. Um, I'm going to stick in our second sponsor and then we can move on to uh, some more interesting topics. Uh, our second sponsor today is Squarespace.com. Everything you need to make an amazing website. Squarespace is a fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating and maintaining a beautiful website, blog, or portfolio. This means that no matter what your level of experience is with building websites, you can build something amazing in minutes. You don't have to worry about hosting, scaling, or integrating with social services like Twitter and Facebook. And, great news, the new Squarespace has arrived. The templates available in the new Squarespace are outstanding. They're beautiful and clean, and they let your content do all the talking. See new.squarespace.com templates for examples. Everything in this platform is drag and drop, including complex layouts, which makes it even easier and more fun to use. Even the structure is great, with perfectly clean code that's amazing for SEO. There's even image versioning. Everything is integrated, including design, domains, hosting, and support. Layout Engine is Squarespace's page builder. It allows you to create custom layouts for each of your pages in seconds. You add blocks of content such as photos, videos, text, social media, and more. You don't have to worry about what your site will look like on a mobile device. When you design pages with the new Squarespace, your entire site, including images, will restructure automatically to fit on every device and maintain the beauty of the original site's design. If you like stats, you'll love the real-time analytics that are built into Squarespace. There are iOS and Android apps to let you manage and post on the go. You can even import your content from your current blog and easily set up sharing and syncing with your social media accounts. As always, Squarespace delivers award-winning 24-7 customer support that responds in minutes. They also have live online workshops to walk you step-by-step -step through everything you need to know to build an amazing site. When you sign up for a year of Squarespace, you get a free custom domain name. If you want to pay month-to-month, -month, you can easily link your custom domain with just a few clicks. There's no credit card required to try it out. Simply go to squarespace.com and start your trial. Squarespace is $10 a month for the standard plan and $20 a month for the unlimited plan. If you sign up for a year, you automatically get 20% off, and if you sign up for two years, you get 25% off. 5 by 5 listeners should make sure to use the offer code BIGTACO when you purchase for an additional 10% off. Check them out at squarespace.com. You use Squarespace, right, Brett? I do. Do you love it? I do love it. Actually, I've the site that I have that I mentioned before is running on Squarespace 5, and I've played with Squarespace 6 a bunch, and it's really freaking awesome. So I'm waiting to carve out an hour of my life where I can move everything on my current site to Squarespace 6. But it's, uh, yeah, they, they have, it's, I, I'm constantly blown away by how much you get for how little money they ask of it, ask for you, like read spend. It's absurd. So, but yeah, they make great, great stuff. As the guy that everyone sends their WordPress databases to, to fix before they switch to Squarespace, I'm aware that a lot of bloggers are switching to Squarespace right now. I've seen many, many of my contemporaries, the, you know, Monday morning I'll go up like, Oh, we're on Squarespace now. I'll be like, ah, oh, right on. 
and I love the idea. I just, there's, I just want to make things more complex instead of easier. I, it, it's painful, but I have to, I, I'm not a happy person if I can't just tweak everything. Yep. It, I don't know if I get done with work and I sit back and think, what should I do? And there's nothing to do because, you know, an amazing application has solved all my problems. I would, I would be distraught. Yeah. Then you watch TV and the whole thing would fall apart. Oh, TV. I do like some TV. I love my TiVo. I don't have a TiVo. I have a Roku. I love my Roku. Roku too. Which kind do you have the, the X, X HD, whatever the new one is. We have the crappy, like three year old. We bought this to assuage our, cause we got rid of cable. We got rid of all like yeah, possible ways of getting live television in our house. Um, yeah. We bought this Roku so we could watch uh, Netflix movies on our TV, on our TV. And we bought like the, we, our TV is literally 15 years, 16 years old. It's this old piece of crap. And so we bought like the $70 bottom of the barrel, you know, the Roku, this, it's not even standard definition. It's like poop definition or something. <laughs> and so, and it's been, you know, slugging away for the last three or four years. And we, it's really, really nice. So, yeah. Do you, do you use like uh, Hulu or Pandora or anything on it? Not really. Mostly because I mentioned the TV sucks. So we, we use the Amazon. Uh, we're Amazon Prime people. So we use, yeah. you can watch Amazon movies on there and, and Netflix. Uh, there's a couple of podcasts that are on there, which is kind of crazy. And I watch those every now and again. That's pretty rare. But the end gadget show is on uh the Roku. Is it? Yeah. Huh. I thought that was fun. That is fun. Given that I work for them and all. Right, right. Um yeah, so anyway, TV aside, uh let's go ahead and do picks of the week and see if we have time left to cover any of our other uh favorite topics. Okay. Um I'll go ahead and start with an interesting iOS app that I added to the iText editor spreadsheet this week called FioWriter, F-I-O Writer. And it it doesn't do a lot of the things that I love about my favorite text editors, uh, in, such as Markdown Preview. Uh, it does not have sync or, or anything like that. All that it has that I love about it is it has command, control, and uh, option keys on the keyboard. And they function exactly as you would expect them to. And you have control A and E for beginning and end of line, F and B for forward and backwards, N and P for next and previous. And then you can hold down shift and make your selections and shift option. And it's, it's for someone who edits primarily on a Mac, it makes so much sense. And it's the easiest way I've found for editing chunks of text is just to go back to the command and option keys that I know and love. It's rather antithetical to the whole idea of a touch surface and multi-touch and everything. And WriteUp did a really cool job recently of making, you can uh, touch the keyboard with two fingers and just slide around the keys and it'll uh, become like a trackpad for selection or three fingers selection, two fingers to move. Hmm. I don't know if you saw that, but that was amazing. Yeah. Well, that was the proof of concept thing that they were like, make Apple make the keyboard like this, please thing. Right. Well, WriteUp actually, on the App Store, an app called WriteUp actually did it. Oh. Oh, I didn't know about that. I remember seeing And you can just, just hit the keyboard anywhere on the keyboard with two fingers and just start dragging around, and it'll move your cursor. And if you hold down three, you'll start making a selection. You can just drag until you're finished with your selection. It's, it's hot. That sounds hot. But being able to hit Control-A 
control shift E to select a paragraph mm-hmm. it just works in my brain. It just makes sense. What's well, all, yeah. it's all Emacs. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Circa 1960 something. <laughs> Oldie, but goodie. Yep. <laughs> all right. So, so that's my, my top pick. It's on iOS. It's called file writer and I'll link it in the show notes. What do you have? All right. So I have the first one is an app for actually, I'm not going to mention that one. I got to think of a third one real quick. The first one I have is an iOS app and it's called place me. And I'm a sort of a new convert to this app. I learned about it at the Evernote trunk conference very recently. And what it is is so little background. So I, uh, I have a Foursquare account that I have uh, up until recently. I had like three friends and I've since deleted all of them. So I use Foursquare primarily just to remember where I've been. So I travel not a ton, but I go to Northern California a lot to visit Evernote headquarters because I work there. And we go out to eat and go to different places nearby. And I just Foursquare check in my place wherever. I, sorry, I check in on Foursquare wherever I go, so I have a record of where I've been, and if I ever go back there, etc. So, but you know, all all the social stuff is lost on me. And I did that so because all of my Foursquare check ins via IFTTT go to Evernote. But there's this app called Place Me that just sort of sits around. I'm not sure how it does. I'm sure it uses the geofencing API somehow or something do with like a low level location finding thing, but it just sort of looks at where you go all the time. And so I've, I can look at place.me or place, sorry, place me right now and look at my view for today. Right now it's like nine o'clock on a Monday night. So I was at my, my mom's house earlier, my in-laws house later. I went to the pizza place a couple hours ago. I've gone and left. I've come home and left three or four times. I went to a shopping center earlier. Like I can, it just has this, this big list. And every day at midnight, it email it makes a new note in Evernote with all the places I went and what I tweeted while I was there. If I tweeted anything, it just puts it all in line with while you were at home, you said blip, 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 and just makes and if you checked it on Foursquare, it puts that in there. And so it just keeps this real cool daily log of where I went and what I said on the internet, which is and it looks really nice. So it's I think it's free. If not, it's like a buck or two. It's really nice. But yeah, I uh I'm very impressed. That sounds really cool. I've had a couple people mention that one since I started working on Slogger. Yeah. Uh, and it, adding that location information is, it's definitely uh, added value there. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's awesome. So that's that's my first one. Back to you, Volley. Okay. I'm, I'm getting better at this round robin thing. Um, reveal.js is not, um, not going to be for everybody, but if you do presentations and you know some basic HTML markup, this is the coolest library I've ever seen for creating dynamic HTML5 slides. Uh, presentations that you can show in your browser. If you if you have Node installed, you can actually see your notes and your upcoming slides and everything just like with uh, a keynote type of application. And it gives you amazing transitions by default you can build your own it has a huge api um and you can have custom events for everything you can do incremental builds you can have slides that move horizontally and vertically you can nest them so you can like dig down into topics and i'm working on a bundle for both textmate and sublime that will make it easy to Actually, and and an editor agnostic version that will make it easy to turn just pure markdown into these slides. Um, but for right now, I just want to mention reveal.js, and I'll link the GitHub repo for that. It is it's outstanding. Nice. And I I guess I guess there are several prominent uh, 
HTML and CSS guys that are using it for all their presentations already. And I'm late to the party, but still worth mentioning. Rad. Okay. So, so I'm, someone has probably, well, someone probably, you all probably know what this is already, but I found this about a month ago. Uh, it's called better touch tool. <laughs> have, have you talked about this already? I don't remember if I've talked about it specifically, but I, I'm, I'm a religious, uh, religious user of it. Okay. So I started, like about a month ago, I, I, cause I work at my, my same desk with, I work for, at home for my day job and I work at here at night and my, I use the same hand, my right hand to control the mouse. And I've, I've done that for, you know, decades. And I started noticing my wrist was getting really, really sore. So I had this magic trackpad sitting over off to the side of my desk that I almost never used. And I thought, okay, well, we'll, we'll switch over here and give this a try. So long story short, I use that almost exclusively now, at least during the day. And I really got tired because my, I use, I use my left hand to do all the, you know, command W, command Q, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the keyboard shortcuts in OS 10 use just the left hand. So I got tired of switching between the two. So I found this better touch tool, which lets you map gestures on the trackpad to all sorts of things, including keyboard combinations or keyboard shortcuts. So for example, uh, I have a, as a global mapping on better touch tool, if I pinch in that issues a command W to like close the window or close the browser tab or whatever. Um, I have the, I forget the name of the gesture, but it's like you put your two fingers on the trackpad and you make like a, a counterclockwise motion like that in, in rotate. Chrome that yeah, ro rotate left or rotate or left goes back in Chrome to like the previous page, right goes forward. Um, and I have, uh, and it has some of the actually replaced this app called Moom, which I think you've probably heard of Yeah, the little window positioning thing. So I love Moom. Moom's nice, but this actually obviated Moom for me. So I can take, I take my four fingers and I swipe to the right. It takes the current window and docks it across half of the screen on the right hand side. And I do the same thing swiping to the left. It takes the, it basically just fills half the display with that window on the right and then on the left. So I can easily put two windows right next to each other without having to, you know, keyboard them around. See, I actually use better touch tool to trigger Moom. Oh, really? And some more complex layouts. But yeah, I, like for me, uh, Command W is mapped to a bottom right click on my Magic Trackpad, mm -hmm. which is something I would almost never accidentally hit. So if I if I just I can use the ball of my pinky finger, and I can just reach down and hit the trackpad on the corner, and it'll close the window. Nice. And then they have tip tap gestures, like you put down your ring finger and tap with your middle finger. Or or vice versa, and I use that for switching tabs in any application. I knew uh, you'd be better at this. Whatever <laughs> the possibilities are endless. I love that app, and and it takes some muscle memory. I only add one at a time, and I use it for a day. And if I haven't, if it hasn't stuck by the end of the day, I remove it because there was a day that I I built like thirty different shortcuts, and before I had. Any idea what was happening? I was closing windows and switching tabs accidentally and made a mess of things. But uh, once you, if you if you do it slowly and you add just one gesture at a time, you can do some amazing things. Like for me, uh, if I put my fingers down in in order, counting from uh, first finger to pinky, if I go two one four three, it'll quit the current application. <laughs> and if I slide three fingers up, my lights turn off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah dude you're crazy i know it's it's a sickness well i'm like because <laughs> i would think about that for three seconds ago that's so hard 
Like I, that would take me just even remembering the order to put my fingers down. I would be like, forget it, never gonna happen. But you do it, like you. <laughs> no, I'll be on the phone with my wife, and I'll be like, oh no, I left the office lights on. Just go to my computer and and slide up with three. No, don't click. Just slide. And yeah, it's it's hard to explain to people. And other other gestures lost out to that one. That's the funny thing. It's like there were other ones that <laughs> that were that were less intuitive or less sticky. And you're like, no, I'm sticking with this two seven four nine guy. And that that those custom gestures, the four tap ones in in custom sequences, those those I only have two of because it's just too much to remember. Yeah. But uh, it, you can do cool stuff with uh, like four three two one, so you can just like like you're drumming your fingers you just tap across your and you can assign that to whatever you want to so if that's a natural gesture for you you can make that your command w or whatever starts the music because you're bored actually that's four finger click but yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) what's fist good pick though yeah good there is an 11 finger click in that app have you seen it i have yeah I, I haven't ever made use of that one, but basically it's like if you take your whole hand flat on and just smash it. Oh, okay. You don't have to actually reach over with like <laughs> no. your nose and your 10 fingertips? No, it's actually, it's the 11 finger slash whole hand click. Oh, okay. I saw 11 finger and then I just stopped reading. <laughs> I'll never yeah. use that. Understandable. Yeah. All right. Um, Back to you, sir. So my last pick is going to be Archie which is a Mac app that is currently in beta and it is Sparrow for Google Docs is how I would best describe it. It gives you an amazingly intuitive and and beautiful interface for dealing with Google Docs. And you can preview, you can quick look all your Google Docs, you can double click them to open the actual file in a local editor. You can drag files into it, you can use the Google Drive, um, it basically is just a, a really fluid interface to Google Docs and makes it part of your local system. And it's been really impressive for me, really smooth. The last couple betas have greatly improved uh, update ability and everything. Um, definitely worth checking out. Can you edit the files in a plain text editor? No, like if you double click, actually, there may be a way to do that, but if you double click like a, a Google Word document, mm-hmm. what do they call them on Google? A Google Doc, uh, like it'll open it in Pages and it'll open spreadsheets and Numbers, and you can assign um, your default apps for those things. Nice. I don't know if there's because Google doesn't really have an equivalent to a plain text file, do they? No, I, I was wondering mostly about editing like you know Word style documents in plain. That's when you said open an external application that's the first thing i thought of was editing those in like byword or something i'm like oh my gosh that'd be awesome but okay no you can choose uh you can choose a suite you can say uh iwork or microsoft word and then yeah you can only choose from apps within those two suites okay but still pretty cool sounds cool your apps are way nerdier than mine i have that habit yeah i know okay well this is i I was i'm not going to mention the one i mentioned off the can I, can I do two if I do them really quick? I Yes. Okay. So the first one is an app called Uber, which a lot of the people from the Bay Area will probably know about because they're in technology and they're they're cool. But uh, this Uber is this like it's a car service. And it's basically like cabs, but way, way better. So you, you download this iPhone app, you sign up, and you enter your credit card. And when you're in, an, in a, 
a city where Uber it, it runs, which most, I think a lot of major cities have it now. They're adding new ones all the time. But say for in, in San Francisco, you open this app and say, I want to ride. And it will show you on the regular map UI on the iPhone. Okay, here's all the guys that are near you or the sorry, the drivers who are near you. And, you know, John will be there in nine minutes. You know, tell him when you get there, tell him where you want to go. And you'll just get in this huge black Lincoln, <laughs> this plush With tinted ride. windows. With tinted windows. You feel like a like a Coke czar or something. <laughs> and you throw your bag in there and you sit. And there's like a paper in the back of the thing. He's super nice. And you just, I'll go to the airport. All right, cool. It doesn't say a word. It's so awesome. And it's a little bit more expensive than a cab, but not even that much. It's really a good deal. So it's. You do have to tell him your name, though. Yes. Yes. If you're worried about anonymity, if you are an actual Coke czar, you might. Well, you just have to tell him the name that you put into Uber so he can confirm that he picked the right person up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, they have your credit card, too. So there's, there's, you know, there's paper. But (laughs) (laughs) anyway, for all of us (laughs) above board folk, Uber's really cool. So the second thing I wanted to pick, uh, unless you had something to say about that. I. I've used Uber only in San Francisco. Uh, I know it exists in, in several cities, but I have loved it. Dude. Um, you can tip, you can, you can rate your driver. Your driver can rate you. So you get like a rating every time you take an Uber cab, like it'll develop a rating and, and there's a certain freedom of choice. Who's going to pick you up based on your rating and everything. Oh. And, uh, and you can rate drivers and you can see drivers ratings and you can, you don't have to, there's no exchange. Like when you get to the place you're going, you just get out. Yep. And then your credit card gets billed. Yeah. You're just done. And it's, it's fast. It's, it's so much nicer than actually waiting for a cab when you have no idea how long the cab's going to be. Yep. It's awesome. So yeah. Okay. Go on. So second pick, uh, is an app, which is kind of an old app, I think, but it's called airfoil. Do you use airfoil? I love airfoil. Okay. I just started using it about two months ago. Okay. See, cause we, I, like I said, I work at home. My wife homeschools our kids at home and we're all at home like all the time. So we have, I'm in the office where I'm sitting now. There's some speakers hooked up to this Mac that I'm using. And in the kitchen, there is an airport express. And in the living room, there's an airport express, both of which have a small set of like desktop speakers set up to them or set up, you know, with them. So with airfoil, what you can do is you can fire up iTunes or RDO or Spotify or any of the, well-known music playing apps on Mac and just hit play. And then you can use using uh, airplay or no, using it, it doesn't use airplay. Sorry. Airfoil. You just fire it up and it listens. It grabs the audio from the app that you're playing through and you can stream it to any and all of those speakers throughout your entire house. It's so cool. So you can have the same song playing literally in, you know, four, you know, 400 rooms or whatever. And it keeps them all in sync. So you can just walk around and hear the same music the entire, throughout the entire house. And, we use, and my wife always wants me to play something while she's cleaning the kitchen or in the living room. And I want to play something different. So I'll plug my iPhone into my headphones in here and play something on airfoil for her. And it's, or, you know, it's really cool. So it, I think the app is like 10 bucks or 15 bucks. It's super cheap. It's probably worn that. And I'm going to sound like a jerk, but it's, it's very inexpensive for what it is. And also you can use, there's an iOS companion app, which I don't know if it's still out. I think there was some licensing business with it a while back, but it's called airfoil speakers. And you can fire this up on your iPhone or your iPad or your iPod touch, I assume. And you can, if you're on the same Wi-Fi network, you can stream music to that device too. I haven't tried that. It's pretty sweet. I hope that's still out and I'm going to look that up. I think it is. I have, I have the iOS app. I just, I remember hearing something about some, some, how it being weird Apple stuff. Does your wife share your proclivity for the metal? <laughs> no. 
Yeah, mine either. It's funny. Whenever we get in the car, when I'm, it's just me and my kids, they're like, I'll play a song. They're like, does mommy like this? I'm like, absolutely <laughs> not. Mommy would be... <laughs> this would have ended three seconds earlier if mommy had even heard it. So, so I always play the really hard stuff with my... Well, it's just my kids and I. But yeah, my wife doesn't like it. Yeah, I had... Uh... Grave Worms cover of Iron Maiden's Fear of the Dark playing on the Apple TV, rather loud, and I it it ended and I stopped it and I could just I could hear uh, music blasting out of my wife's office in an attempt to cover up the sound. <laughs> what was it? What was she playing? I don't even know. Something off the current, uh, which is Minnesota Public Radio's awesome like music station. Okay. If you guys haven't listened to The Current, you really should. They they stream on the internet. Oh. It's the only station where you can hear like the Clash and the Ramones right up against like the Yeah Yeah Yeahs and more modern indie stuff. It's it's just amazing. The Current, I'll check it out. No metal though. Oh, forget it. No metal. We used to have a show on our local college station called Loud and Local. And like all my high school bands and everything were on there and they would occasionally cover some local like deathcore and metal bands. And that was always fun on the radio, hearing death metal on the radio. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Remember radios? Uh, dude, vaguely. <laughs> I have one in my car. That I, I do I, too. I use it for with an FM transmitter for my iPod. Yeah. I have a little cord from my phone to my car that I can play music. So the radio <laughs> is purely a conduit for music from my iPhone. Yeah. Even, uh, I even use the, the NPR app, more than I use the radio to tune in. Really? Public radio, yeah. It's clear signal or you just feel... I live in the boonies. It's Our, our NPR reception is, is uh, shoddy. Gotcha. But anyway... We digress. Uh, we do. Uh, it, I think that's healthy once in a while. I agree. Well, you know, got to work metal in somehow. Right. And you're such a grounded person otherwise. My, my podcasts always end up diving into... Um, personality uh quirks and flaws and and i love those conversations but it's 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 a change up to talk to someone who is uh relatively sane i would say would you consider yourself relatively sane i would say i'm just a really good liar no i'm pretty sane our third sponsor today is hover.com simplified domain management You've probably registered a domain with a company that just wants to sell you services you're not interested when all you want is a simple .com, .net, or maybe a .co or .tv domain. Hover makes it easy. Just enter the domain you're interested in into their search box, and Hover, Hover will tell you if it's available. If not, it'll come up with suggestions. You can also just type in a few keywords, and Hover will figure out some available domains using those terms for you, like your own personal magical robot. They have real human beings available for support, and their number is right on the front page of the website. If you have any problems, just pick up the phone and call. They have a no-hold policy. Someone just answers the phone. Seamless transfers from other providers, elegant DNS management, email hosting, and more. And even though I'm not Dan, if you use the code DANSENTME or visit hover.com slash DANSENTME, you'll get 10% off of everything you buy from hover.com. And that'll be it for Systematic today. Uh, thank you, Mr. Kelly, for gracing us with your presence. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was totally fun. And uh, and you can find Brett Kelly uh, at Bridging the Nerd Gap, which is nerdgap.com, and as InkedMN uh, on Twitter and on app.net. And definitely check out his book, Evernote Essentials, 
which you can find from his homepage at nerdgap.com. And, uh, and I'll link that in the show notes as well. Anywhere else you want people to find you? Uh, just not in my house. Okay, stay away from Brett's house. And, and you can find me at brettturfshire.com and ttscoff on app.net and Twitter. And if you look hard enough, you'll find me on Facebook and elsewhere. And feel free to send comments and feedback and any questions you have to the 5x5 contact form uh, care of Brett Terpstra. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a week.